0: Well Thank you, Pastor Keith. I feel like a piece of toast. He kind of <laughs> buttered me up kind of kind of thick there. I hope I can at least come close to living up to that that very high exaltation so thank you very much um yeah so i i'm I'm glad to be here i've uh I've spent uh, many days with Pastor Keith, driving around, trying to implore people to come and respond to the gospel. We've done lots of we called it drive-by evangelism, where somebody's just minding their own business, walking down the street in East Dallas, and we'd er, pull over next to him and try to give them a tract out the window and usually freak them out a little bit more, but it was, uh, it was good. I'm, I'm glad the kids are here uh, today. I, I remember the uh, sermon, Kendall reminded me just a minute ago about the the sermon when I was preaching at City Church Dallas and out from this back little side door where the worship team comes in, here comes little Carson just charging through there and then comes Glenn, one of the, one of the, one of, one of the ushers trying to catch him. And I remember I, I pointed out that was your kid. I wanted to make sure that wasn't my kid that, that ran through there. So we might make sure Carson has a seatbelt or something as we, <laughs> as we go through this. Hebrews, how many of you were here last week? Because I'm not planning to preach last week again, but let's, okay, so a lot of you, so <laughs> Hebrews is a book, it's 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 written to a group of probably Jewish believers who are struggling, tempted, considering this idea of kind of swerving away from centrality of Jesus Christ and focusing on him and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're They're tempted to kind of revert to some of their Jewish roots to maybe minimize some of the things that the Jews at that time were struggling with. Paul says that he preached Christ crucified, and he said that when he preached Christ crucified, it was a stumbling block to Jews. To Gentiles, it was foolishness. It didn't make any sense, but to the Jews, it had this sense of, ah, whoa, 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 the Messiah got killed, right? They, they, they had this expectation, many of them did, of this, this glorious Messiah who comes to reign as king and establish his kingdom and this picture of a crucified Messiah created some kind of a, some angst in their hearts. And it was a, a stumbling block for many of the Jews. And so the writer of Hebrews begins by speaking of this high and exalted Jesus, the divine son of God in chapter one, right? He's emphasizing the son who is higher than the angels. If you were there, it's, it goes into great detail about this, this idea of Jesus being higher, more glorious than the angels. Okay? And then in, when we transition into chapter two, I'm going to start in verse five of chapter two, it starts to focus in on the humanity of Jesus. And so one of the great truths of Christianity is this beauty of our Savior who is both God and man. Fully God, fully man. And there's this beautiful tension that, that, that actually throughout the history of the church, they've, they've struggled to articulate that. This has been a, actually a point of sometimes division. Uh, sometimes parts of the church have said, you know, I'm not going to spend any time with you anymore. We're going to separate ourselves from you because you're explaining that in a way that I don't like. And so this has been a point of tension. So as I get into this, there is some controversial aspects to this, to this emphasis of Jesus' humanity and how that relates to him being also divine, the son of God. We're going to begin in verse five. It says, It is not to angels that he, that's God, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him that 's kind of complicated <laughs> there's a little bit of str- I, I suspect some of you guys couldn 't sleep last night because you were just going, "You know I wonder who the world to come is going to be subjected to? Is it angels?" This isn't isn't a question that we walk around today thinking about, but this was a big deal in the time of of the beginning of the church, right? The the Jews were struggling with this idea of angels. There was a tendency, he he actually, in another verse, it's Paul, who speaks of this idea of people who were worshiping angels, right? So they they had this big, intricate, called angelology. They They were really interested in this. So who is the world to come going to be subject to? And I'm going to move quickly through these three verses, So, actually, what is the world to come? Let's start with that. What is the world to come? It's the it's the picture of the messianic kingdom, the the kingdom ushered in by Jesus, and so it's here in part after his first coming, that we experience some of the, we taste of it a little bit, of the powers of the age to come. Hebrews 6, 5 says that. But it's something that we're looking forward to. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says this. It says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And so as believers, we are always at some point and in some sense always looking forward to the world that is to come. So who's it subjected to? He says, not angels. Then Who? Well, in the beginning of Hebrews, it speaks of Jesus being the heir of all things, right? Hebrews 1, verse 2. It is subjected to Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, if you read other places in the text or throughout the New Testament, you actually see some places in which we are functioning as kind of part of Jesus' administration in this age that is to come. I'll give you just a couple of verses quickly. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that, you, but the, that the saints will judge the world? A few minutes later, it says in that the saints will judge angels. Revelation 321, Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Or Second 2 Timothy 212 says if we endure, we will also reign with him. And so there is this sense in which. We get to participate, in some sense, in the government of the world that is to come. Kind of exciting, right? Did you know that you guys are actually going to judge the world? Actually, going to judge angels. I'll let y'all figure out the implications of that. I don't know that I figured. There's a lot of mystery there, and I don't know if I'm going to go into it right now. But so let's let's quickly jump through Psalm 8. I'm not going to reread it again. We've read it a couple of times now. But if you look at the context of that, if you go back and read Psalm 8, you'll see that it's actually very specifically speaking of. Genesis 1. It's saying, it says God, it's about man, it says you made him ruler over all the works of your hand and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So it's a reflection on Genesis 1 and 2 when God gave man his dominion mandate. He told him to subdue the world and take dominion over it. But you see just in the next chapter of Genesis that man fails. That man fails in his mandate of being the shepherds of the world, let's say. They fail, they sin. And so he says, now we see the, we see, what do we see? We don't see it in subjection. And the debate here is whether that's man or Jesus. I'm going to say I think that's man. So in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That's Hebrews 8. We do not see everything subject to man, right? At man's sin came in death. Came in decay, came in disease, came in frustration. Right, so man is fighting this losing battle with death. Right, if we were taking score, how many men overcame and escaped death, and how many times did death win the battle? If we took score, it'd be like twenty billion for death, and like two for man. Just a couple of people in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, who seem to, in some sense, escape some aspect of death, but but ultimately we're losing right this is a this is a death is inevitable right we are faced every day with the reality of our death there's some statistics on death right now the the death rate is 1 in 1 you get it it's kind of funny all right so the, the the reality is this death is inescapable all of us face our own mortality right and for many we're going to see later in the book it it grips us it holds us in this fear this tension—we're we're held in slavery to this fear of our own mortality. People go on all sorts of diets. They—they they do all sorts of exercise plans. They—they they buy life insurance. They—they do—they go to the, all these—they go to the doctor after doctor after doctor, trying to figure out a way to at least delay this thing called death. And it's terrifying to us. And, and even in America, especially, we're less exposed to it than people throughout the history of the world. We kind of push it away, right? When our Older parents, they get old, we send them off somewhere, so we don't have to see this final stages of the, the what's called the winter of life, the moving closer to death. right? We're not comfortable with it, right? This is something that we're not engaged in. So we have this underlying fear of death. That's this build-up to verse eight. We are currently in a state where man was crowned with glory and honor, right He was made he was given dominion, and he blew it. And now the world is all messed up. And then it says in verse 9, but we see Jesus. Jesus, we're going to see in verse 9, succeeds where we fail. He conquers where we were defeated. But enters Jesus onto the scene. It says in verse 9, Jesus, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death. Why is Jesus, so he's, he's a little lower than the angels. So Jesus, way up here, comes down and becomes a little lower than the angels. But now he is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. What was the purpose of him suffering death? Here's this so that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why did Jesus suffer death? To taste death for you. What was the motivation? By the grace of God. So why did he do it? He suffered death to taste it for you. We'll go into more details of why that, what that means exactly. And then what motivated him? Grace, the grace of God, okay? It's not just Jesus the Son. This is God the Father whose heart is grace. It is the Father who sent Jesus to us. Last night we had haircuts at the house, so we had the hosel haircut time. Everybody but Caden gets haircuts because his is too hard, it's long, and And so we just cut his like once a year. But the point is, is I was last in line. I was working on my sermon. The kids got their haircuts and they all jump in the shower afterwards, right? You got to get the hair off, right? So I'm at the end. And so I get in the shower, right? And what happens? It's lukewarm at first. And I'm like, oh, it's going to warm up, you know, and I got to get this hair off and I'm trying to get the hair off. And guess what? It's not warming up. It's going the other direction. Right? It's getting colder and colder. And, colder. and I was I was my plan was I was going to get in the shower and kind of meditate and reflect on what I was doing and, you know, get get focused for tomorrow. And I'm getting frustrated now. I'm like, those kids stay in the shower too long. Ugh. and I'm real. And I just started chuckling. I was like, you know what? I don't like suffering for other people. I don't like tasting death. For somebody else, it just starts bugging me, right? Any any fathers here in the room? Kids ever woke up in the middle of the night, uh huh? And you're like your wife. You wait for your wife to get out of bed, start walking to the baby, and then you're like, "Oh, here we get it. I'll get him." You're so, you're so lying. You don't like testing <laughs> tasting death for your wife. You don't like that. It's frustrating to you. I and I see this though, but I, I really I think women reflect the compassion and mercy of God, I think far better than men do. I'm sorry. I think men might reflect the the strength and the power, but they, they reflect the, they lose, they're not as good at the compassion part. When our kids are sick, Right? And they're like, blah, blah, blah. My wife's like, oh, baby. She's like right by them, holding their hair back. I'm like, you're going to get sick. I'm over here washing my hands. <laughs> you, know, you're, uh, you know, go get yourself a drink. Right? <laughs> my wife is compassionate. She draws the sick baby near them and comforts them. She is willing to taste their suffering to bring them comfort, to care for them. Right? It's beautiful. And I'm not. <laughs> I got to work on that. Right? Okay, one last story. We were at the hotel, we went to a hotel in Oklahoma City last week, went to go to a kids museum, and they told us it was a heated pool in the hotel. It was an inside, uh, this pool, and they said it's heated, right? We get in there, and the kid's like, yeah, we're gonna play games with dad in the pool, and I step in, I'm like, <gasps> It's not It's not heated very much. <laughs> I see this other guy. He's standing there going, yeah, they said it was going to be heated. <laughs> and the kids are just jumping in, you know, because it's kind of medium warm, but it's not warm. And so I, I told my wife, I resisted for like 10, 20 minutes. Finally, I looked at my wife and said, okay, this is me being a good dad. <laughs> you know, and I was willing to taste and experience suffering for the sake of drawing near to my kids and enjoying fellowship with them. So Jesus is willing to taste death for each of us. Okay? So I'm going to talk about five reasons why I think Jesus became a man. Number 1, pioneer. He became a man to be our pioneer. Verse 10. Okay, chapter 2 verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the result of jesus tasting death for each of us is that we as the sons of god might be brought to glory he brought many sons to glory through his death and it says it was fitting and then it has these two two key phrases i want to jump in on a little bit one of them's a little bit of a parenthesis this is a little bit outside of my main point of him being a pioneer but the first one is is that jesus is made perfect through suffering is that a little weird to anyone here that little tension for you, right? This idea that how can God be made perfect, right? What did, what did Jesus have to be perfected from? Was he? What, did he have some sin that he needed to get cleaned up from? Did Jesus sin? Kids, did Jesus sin? Nope. He didn't. That's right. I appreciate the power of that answer. Jesus did not sin. In fact, a few chapters later in Hebrews 4, it says this very clearly. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Right? Multiple other places in the Bible that says the same thing. So Jesus was without sin. So how can he be made perfect? In what sense is he made perfect? So is he cleansed from his own sin, his own guilt? No. Jesus is not being cleansed from his own sin. So there's a little bit debate. This is what I think it The best way to understand this, I've heard like four or five different arguments, but one of them is this. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read in Exodus chapter 29, you see priests being ordained or consecrated to serve in the temple, okay? If you read through Hebrews, you're going to see about three or four chapters speaking about Jesus as functioning as our high priest. I'm not going to get into that, but Keith will in a couple of weeks. But there's a very strong parallel to this: these priests being ordained and consecrated to serve in the role of priest, okay? Now, what's interesting there is the Old Testament was written in a language. Who knows what the Old Testament was written in? That's the New Testament. Hebrew, Hebrew, that's right, that's right, that's good. It was written originally in Hebrew, the Old Testament, but it was translated into Greek about 200 years before Jesus came to earth, Translated it. It's a book called they, what the translation is called is called the Septuagint. So this Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Here's why this is important. If you go back to Exodus 29 in about four different places, you're going to see where this word consecrated or ordained, it's the same Greek word as this word perfect. He was made perfect. So in a sense, it might be communicating this idea that he was consecrated. He was ordained. He was perfected for the purpose of serving as our high priest. He was qualified to do that. Now, how did they qualify or how did they ordain those priests in Exodus 29 to serve as the priest? What did they have to do? They shed blood. Animals' blood was shed. Blood was frequently sprinkled on the priest. And by that blood, they were ordained. They were consecrated to be able to serve as high priest. Here's the interesting thing, though. Jesus is both the one that is represented as the high priest, but he's also the sacrificial lamb. So what do you do when the sacrificial lamb is also the high priest? The only way to ordain that priest is through his own blood. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was consecrated. He was qualified to be the high priest for us, not by some other animal's blood, but by his own blood perfect, sinless blood. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? So that's the first parenthesis. It's a little bit different than my train of thought. The second one is this idea of the author of their salvation. So remember that I said I was going to talk about five different ways in which or why Jesus became man. Number one is to become our pioneer. And that word author there is a Greek word archigos. Okay, everybody say archigos with me. Archigos, good job, kids. Wait to say Archagoth. You do a really great job. This is good. He's awesome at this. Oh, everybody else else is shy. So it can be translated: pioneer, author, founder, leader, trailblazer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Jesus is basically functioning as our pioneer. Okay? And we are to look to him as our example. If you were traveling down a trail on a wagon, right? You want to stay in the ruts of the wagon that went before you, so that you can stay on the trail. Actually, makes it smoother. So Jesus is kind of functioning as this this uh, this forerunner for us. If you go to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, we see those same words: author, archegos. Actually, we we see the same the similar word, perfector. Right? The Jesus learned or Jesus was made perfect by what he suffered. Now he's the perfector. So he's both the pioneer and the Perfector. okay so what are we to do when we read hebrews 12 it's it's talking about us running a race it's talking about us running with perseverance and what are we supposed to do as we run this race we're to fix our eyes on the pioneer on the archegos right the author and perfector of our faith on jesus and what what are we focusing on we focus on the fact that he endured the cross he despised its shame, and then he had victory. He overcame. He is now sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we are running our Christian race, we can look to Jesus as our pioneer, and we can be encouraged. We can consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man. That's verse 3. That he And we can be encouraged to run our race with perseverance, to not quit, because there is victory at the end of this race. And Jesus has overcome. There's a story of... A missionary that was trying to reach out to some a uh, very remote tribe in South America, and he w- what was happening is is there was this disease that was ravaging the 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 Indians in that in that tribe, and they were um, they were dying they were dying they were dying. But there was a hospital just right down there not far away at all. But the problem was is the hospital was on the other side of a river. And the, those Indians, those, those native that native tribe, believed that the, that, the, that the river was in uh, was filled with evil spirits, and if you went into it, you would be killed. So they wouldn't cross it, and so they just kept dying. So the missionary tried to tell him. He said, "Listen, I've been across that river. It's okay." They didn't believe him. He said he went up to the river, he splashed some water with his hands, and said, "Look, I'm alive. It didn't hurt me." They wouldn't go. He went up to his waist, splashed it on his face. And they all just stood there and still wouldn't go. Finally, he dove under the water, swam across the river, came out on the other side, thrust his fist in the air and said, I overcame. And then they followed. Jesus, in a very similar way, went through the travail of death, came out on the other side and said, there is victory on the other side if you will follow me. And so he is our pioneer. He has gone first. That's the first reason I believe that Jesus became man, to be our archegos, to be our pioneer. Now, here's, here's the difference, though, between that story and what I'm talking about. With the Indians, they were imagining a fake obstacle, right? That was a superstition. There wasn't actually any real spirits in the, in the, in the river that were going to get them, right? Jesus overcame a very real obstacle called death. We have legitimate reasons to be fearful of death. Without Christ, it is appropriate and fitting to be terrified by death. Okay? So the second thing Jesus had to do was overcome for us some very real obstacles. Yes, we needed him to be our pioneer. Yes, we needed to be our example but we needed something more than just Jesus saying, hey, I did it. You can do it too. You know, what is it? Buck up, buckaroo. <laughs> something, that is good. We needed that. But we needed something more. And that's the next verse. The second reason Jesus became man is to sanctify us, to be our sanctifier. Jesus is our pioneer. There you go, kids. This is your This is your picture. If you want to think about Jesus being a pioneer, meditate on this picture. Think about that sanctifier to make us holy hebrews 2 11 but the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family right so jesus is both the one who makes us holy and we are the we, Sorry, he is the one who makes us holy and we are the one who are made holy and we're of the same family or source he shared in our humanity Right as part of his process of making us holy. Now, it doesn't say as, as explicitly in this, but if you go through further in Hebrews, in verse 10 of chapter 10, it says, we have been made holy, how? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 13.12 says, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus is our pioneer, but he's also the one who provides for us holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, right? It is a necessary uh, requirement for us to see the Lord. And it actually, that quickly ties into the third reason that Jesus came here. There's our sanctifier, kids. This is the picture of the sanctifier up here, picture of a priest, lamb, Jesus is making us holy through his own suffering, through his own sacrifice. Interesting. Here's the picture, right? Jesus is both the high priest. He's also the lamb. He is the one who makes us holy. The third reason that Jesus became man is to be our brother, to call us into fellowship. Jesus didn't just make us holy for the sake of making us holy. He made us holy for the sake of bringing us into fellowship with himself and with his holy father. Okay, that's the third reason. So Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers. Second half of verse 11 in chapter 2 again. Jesus was not ashamed to call him brothers. He takes the first step. Keith and I were one time in an apartment complex talking to a, a, a Buddhist guy about, about Jesus. And I, we were, I knew a little bit about Buddhism, so we were talking about this, these things called the Eightfold Path and how you, you go through these steps of enlightenment to, to eventually escape this cycle of reincarnation so that one day hopefully or maybe one after many 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 lives of reincarnation you can one day reach this place of nirvana you can escape this the suffering and the difficulty of life and you can be you can be free or you can be non-existent depending on how you want to talk about it but <laughs> i guess that's great but the point is, is it, it was this process step Step, step, step. And we were standing by a a set of stairs going up to the second floor. And I said, the difference between Christianity and what you were explaining, what we're talking about here in Buddhism is that God comes down the steps in in Christ. He picks you up and he carries you up the steps to his father. Right? That's the difference. It's not you through many lifetimes trying to overcome the difficult, trying to enter into enlightenment, it is God and his great mercy coming down and rescuing you, okay? And so the, the third thing is he steps into humanity. He is not ashamed to be our brother. It's beautiful. He's not ashamed to be our brother. You know what's tragic though? How often are we ashamed of him, right? The righteous one is not ashamed of the unrighteous, but yet the unrighteous is some re- for some reason we are ashamed of him right our coworkers will or think i'm weird if i talk too much about jesus my family members who don't believe like me they're going to be offended and i'm going to make this make thanksgiving awkward now cuz i cuz i'm too bold in my proclamation of jesus right we we are ashamed we are we would rather please men we would rather them think well of us than our righteous brother who is not ashamed of us who gave his life for us fourth reason jesus is our elder brother leading us not ashamed of us even when we do dumb stuff Right? anybody an older brother in here any of your younger siblings ever done something that embarrassed you Mm-hmm. okay shake your head so much that's a little that was a little <laughs> aggressive that was a little aggressive with your head shake <laughs> right anybody ever done that yeah number four liberator Hebrews 2, and now we're in verse 14. So why did Jesus become man? To be our pioneer, to be our sanctifier, to make us holy. But not just for the sake of holiness, for the sake of bringing us into fellowship with he and the Father, to be our brother. Liberator is the fourth. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So why did Jesus become a man? Why did he share in our flesh and blood? Keith told me as we were talking on the phone last night, he says he did it so he could be killable. right? Jesus became man so that he could die. The reason for Christmas is Passover. Jesus was born to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, and what did his death accomplish? Let's look back at this verse 14 so that by his death. Right. So something's going to happen by his death. What does it accomplish? He might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So number one, it's the destruction of the devil, specifically his power of us in through death. And it's our liberation. He sets free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So it's the liberation of those enslaved by a lifelong fear of death. What does that mean? How does Jesus free us from a fear of death? I think there's at least three ways, and the third one I think is the main way. Okay, The first one is, what about this fear of physical death? Does Jesus free us in some way from the fear of the the physical experience of death? I, I, I think... That, that idea of him being a pioneer does to a, to a degree, right? That we see that he was, for the joy set before him, willing to endure the difficulty of death. We still experience physical death as, as humans, right? And as Jesus followers, Jesus doesn't say we're going to be absolved or exempted from experiencing physical death. It still lies before us. And so it, I think it still, even for believers, causes some sense of a little bit of angst, right? We don't like pain. We're not Jesus doesn't say you got to like pain, okay? That's just weird, okay? He, but he tells us he's overcome. He's shown us, just like the guy with the the native, the tribe, right? He swam through the river and came out victorious on the other side. It's worth it. I mean, when my wife is given labor, well, she's she's even labored five kids, right? She's birthed five kids. I don't think it was fun. <laughs> I was getting nauseous. Like I, like I was struggling. I was it was hard for me. But but it was this. It was not fun. But there was joy in life on the other end. It was worth right. Would you say it's worth it? Sorry, let's clarify. <laughs> I don't like to speak too you know strongly like what I know about labor. But. <laughs> Apparently, there's something that guys are doing now. This is—I don't know if any like sane sane or normal guys are doing this—but in order to really be with their their wife in that in their labor, they've got these like electrodes and things they hook on their bodies, and it's like it helps them experience the pain of contractions in labor. That's ridiculous, but but some, they're, they're like, I, you know, I'm joining with you, baby. I'm gonna suffer right with you. <laughs> I guess that's okay, but. I apologize if your wife is looking at you now going, you should do that. That's a great idea. Now you'll understand. Okay, so the physical suffering of death. In some sense, as we see Jesus as our pioneer, it eases the fear of the physical aspects of death. What about the fear of the unknown, the mystery, the 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 shadow that is death? Does Jesus affect that in any way? I think so. I think when we see him on the other side, we see Jesus, right? He raised he, he was raised from the dead, right? We see him victorious on the other side, and he's given us promises. Hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you, right? He, he speaks of these glories and these wonders. There's still some mystery there, but I think it, 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 it's a beautiful picture. It's a alluring picture. And so he eases some of our pain of the unknown. The last way, I think, and I want to emphasize this, this is the third way, and I think the most important way in which Jesus frees us from our fear of death and it's answered in verse 17 of hebrews chapter 2 for this reason he had to be made like his brothers here they go he's emphasized this again and again jesus had to become a man he had to be like his brothers in every way jesus didn't just appear to be a man he didn't just seem to be a man there was a heresy in the early church called gnosticism that talked about this idea that jesus just came as it appeared to be a man it's yeah we'll get into it sorry i'm running out of time so i'm gonna keep moving in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This word, make atonement. Sometimes it's translated propitiation, that he might be the propitiation, right? Those are big words. You guys use those a lot. You walk around, <laughs> kids, y'all better get to work and make atonement, right? We, we, we don't speak of that word very much, right? That word atonement and that word propitiation, here, here's what it's, what it's explaining. It is basically saying that through Jesus' death, he satisfied the righteous demands of God's justice so that God's justice could be maintained, and yet God might extend mercy. It's the way by which God can be both the just, the holy and righteous judge, and the justifier, the one who makes us righteous, at the same time. Jesus paid your fine. He paid the penalty for your sins it was god's will to place on jesus the iniquity of us all it was jesus's will to receive and to allow to be placed upon his shoulder the iniquity of us all this isn't this this debate between the father and son right where the father doesn't father's like i just want to kill them all and jesus is going no no be nice no it is the father's will God is not pleased that anyone should perish. He wants everyone. His passion and his desire is for all of us to come into communion with him. So the three ways I think that Jesus frees us from the fear of death, I think is a pioneer. We see he, he went through this physical suffering of death and he overcame. We can be encouraged. We can get through this. We can look to him as our example. The second one is that the mystery. We see him on the other side. He rose physically. We saw him. He's alive. And the third is, is that he frees us from the second death, the death that we all deserve because of our sins, the punishment, the righteous wrath of God. Jesus frees us from the second death, which is hell. And we don't have to fear that, right? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beauty. When you're in Christ Jesus and you face your mortality, you can face it with courage and with joyous expectation, Because there's no condemnation. There's peace and love and joy and all these things that you will experience after your physical death. Hebrews 2.18, last verse. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And in 4 verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. Jesus has been tempted. He was fully human. That's the great mystery. How can God be tempted? He has to become a human. In every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the review. Jesus is our pioneer. We can look to him and be encouraged. Our faith can be strengthened. Jesus is the one who makes us holy. He's our sanctifier, right? Not just our example. He's our provider of holiness. (laughs) The third thing is Jesus is our brother. He takes the step into humanity, draws near to us, and calls us into fellowship with himself. He cleanses us and makes us holy so that we might be near him. The fourth way is he's our liberator. We don't have to fear death. You don't have to live your life in constant fear of the unknown and what's going to happen and I'm going to die one day. You can be at peace. You can be at peace. And the fourth, fifth way is he's our ongoing helper. As you struggle with temptation... As you struggle with the burdens of life, you can look to him, and he will be your helper. He's an ever-present help in times of need. So I'm going to close there. Jesus, we praise you that in your great mercy and your abundant love that you became man, that you took on human flesh, that you stepped into our world. And as you did that, you were our pioneer. You showed the way. We praise you that you are the one who makes us holy. We praise you that you have called us brothers. You're not ashamed to be our brother. We praise you that you have liberated us from our fear of death. And we praise you that you are our ever-present help in time of need. And so we just look to you. We lift up your name. And I ask that anyone here who is experiencing that fear of death, who is experiencing uh, temptation and needs your help, Anyone who is, who is struggling to be sanctified, anyone who is just lonely and has no companionship, I pray that you would be their brother, that you would draw near to them. And Lord, as we just struggle to find out our way to walk the path of this life, I pray that we would look to you as our pioneer, as our example in the faith. We draw near to you, Lord, we ask for your help. pray in Jesus' name.